Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. From the most ancient times, the great and powerful have feared assassination and particularly assassination by poison. It's not surprising then that also from the most ancient times attempts have been made to develop remedies and prophylactics against poison. Now clearly the most useful prophylactic would be one that was active against all possible poisons since presumably one can't know in advance which poison the assassin will choose. I'm going to talk mainly about the 16th century, but before that, let me just remark that although universal prophylactics were around for more than a millennium and a half, during that time, hardly anyone made any attempt to see whether, in fact, they worked. In the 16th century, there was a very small number of tests that I've come across, I think it's four altogether, that I'm going to spend most of the time on today. But before uh, we get to that, we have to go back rather a long way to one Mithridates, king of Pontus, about whom that fierce classicist A.E. Hausmann wrote, as you see, that uh, he was able to resist all sorts of poisons, arsenic, strychnine, and so on, I tell the tale that I heard told, Mithridates, he died old. That tale is a famous and proved a powerful one. There was a real Mithridates, in fact there were a whole shoal of Mithridates, but it's only Mithridates VI, king of Pontus, who concerns us today. He inherited the kingdom of Pontus, about 120 BC, when he was around 14. Significantly, his father, from whom he inherited, was assassinated in about 120 BC at a lavish banquet by poison. The kingdom of Pontus, when Mithridates inherited it, was really quite small. But he was active and aggressive and succeeded in grabbing a whole lot of territory so that by the height of his power, around 80 BC, all the coloured areas on this map except the green formed the kingdom of Pontus. You can see it's a very large chunk of the Middle East. The green Armenia was held by one of Mithridates' allies who on the whole fought beside him. It's not surprising then, that holding all this territory, Mithridates soon came into conflict with the principal imperial power of the time, which was not yet imperial, that's to say, late Republican Rome. He fought three wars with the Romans. The first two were inconclusive, but finally, in 73 BC, the Romans decided to annex Bithynia, Mithridates attacked them and started the third Mithridatic War, which lasted a decade, 73 to 63, and was finally won by Pompey. 
Eventually cornered, Mithridates committed suicide in 63. It was said that he attempted to commit suicide by poison. Actually, he tested the poison first by poisoning his wife and children, who duly dropped dead. But Mithridates himself failed because he'd inured himself to poison by taking repeated sublethal doses. And this story uh, was forced by the fact that among Mithridates' papers, which were gone through by Pompey's freedman after his suicide, was discovered a complex formula which declared itself a panacea against all poison. Now, whether or not it's true that Mithridates did attempt to immunize himself against poison, the tale was believed and was taken as evidence that it was possible to create universal antidotes which would protect against all poisons. In general, it was also believed that such prophylactics would also cure the poisoning after the poison had been taken. And the story is repeated by that late Republican encyclopedist and possibly physician, Celsus, who in his De Medicina tells us that the most reputed of antidotes is that which King Mithridates is said to have taken every day and thus made his body proof against the danger of poison contained many ingredients and was to be taken, as you see, in a small quantity with wine. Notice that what Celsus says is that it was repeated doses of an antidote which immunized them, not repeated sublethal doses of poison. And both stories, or both versions of the story, in fact, persist in parallel. But whichever version was believed, the story became so famous and the antidote became so famous that Mithridates gave his name to universal antidotes, uh, universal prophylactics, I should say, which were also universal antidotes, which became called Mithridates. These universal prophylactics persisted in European culture, certainly for a millennium and a half, probably for rather longer. Many of them were mixtures of many ingredients in which poisons or supposed poisons, for instance, extracts from vipers, were pretty well always included. Some formulae, recipes, were published, but many were kept as closely guarded and no doubt highly profitable secrets. But there were also two renowned simple universal antidotes, each derived from a single source, and it's on those two that I'm going to, well, it's about those two that I'm going to talk for the rest of the time. The first single Mithridate, then, is Licorn. Licorn, Alicorn, or in Italian, Alicorno, is the horn of the unicorn. Highly reputed and extraordinarily expensive, as we shall see. It was used either as a powder or prepared by soaking a piece of the horn in water, which was then drunk. In fact, many royal courts included a cup in which a piece of licorn was kept so that any drink that the king took from it would have been sanitized, cleansed of poison by contact with the horn. The second universal mithridate is the so-called bizarre stone, a concretion found in the stomach of some ungulates. We'll say a bit more about the details of that in a moment. 
Now, in the by going, I have to mention one more substance, or preparation perhaps rather than substance, and that is mummy or mamia, which really was not a mithridate at all, though it was believed to aid healing. It was particularly efficacious in preventing blood clotting or in dispersing hematomas and dealing with infected hematomas. Useful stuff. It was sold as being made from ground-up Egyptian mummy. But Omquas Pare, the great sergeant of the 16th century, tells us that it was most often made from corpses, stolen from the gibbet or robbed from graves. That, of course, would be a good deal easier and cheaper than importing a piece of mummy from Egypt. It was given by mouth, usually made the patient vomit, which is hardly surprising, particularly if they knew where it came from, and never in his experience did the slightest good. I mention it only because it was as a result of a discussion about mummy with one of his patients that Paré decided to write a treatise on licorn, on unicorn horn. Just before we leave it, here is the picture from Mattioli's commentaries on the herbal of Dioscorides, again about which a little more later. It's a woodcut, 16th century woodcut, hand-coloured at the time of the book's publication under the entry Mummy, and I think it speaks for itself. Now, the story. One of Paré's distinguished and noble patients had a nasty accident at the end of August 1580. His horse slipped, <coughs> fell, and fell on him. Not only that, it got up, slipped, and fell again on him. After that, he was really rather battered. He had a number of injuries, but particularly he had a huge hematoma over his spine and sacrum. To cut a long story short, Paré, with a number of others, treated his hematoma successfully. The patient survived, and at the end of his treatment, he said, Paré, why did you not give me mummy to treat my hematoma? So Paré told them, just what I've already said, that it's horrible, disgusting stuff made from corpses and it doesn't do any good, but I'm very glad nobody gave it to you. Well, said the patient, what about unicorn horn then? What do you think of that? And that incident, he says, stimulated Paré to write a treatise. Here is a page from the dedicatory letter to that in which Paré tells us a little bit about his general view of unicorns. He says, first of all, we don't know what this beast may be, or indeed, if there are such beasts. We don't know where it's to be found. Some say in Ethiopia, some say in the distant lands, always somewhere far away, always somewhere exotic. But everyone speaks from hearsay, and they know no more about the properties of the unicorn or its horn than they do about where it is to be found. And particularly, they talk about its habits, and some say that it's ferocious and cruel, that it howls hideously and can never be taken alive. But others, on the contrary, call it gentle and benign and besotted by young women, enjoying gazing at them and say that it's often captured by this means. I'm going to divert for a moment or two for us to catch our unicorn. 
The unicorn was also sometimes called by the Greek name Monoceros, which means, of course, exactly the same single horn. And here is a rather nice portrait of one from the Aberdeen Bestiary, a manuscript of about 1200. The Latin text beside it describes the beast and ends by saying that no living monoceros has ever come into man's hands. It can be killed but can't be captured. Well, that was one view, but actually the more common view and the more interesting view is that it was indeed possible to capture the unicorn. We have a particularly nice description of how to capture your unicorn from an Anglo-Norman bestiary written in the first quarter of the 12th century, which incidentally is also about the earliest Anglo-Norman document to survive. Here then, we're told that the unicorn is a beast with a single horn on its head. From this he gets his name. He's like a billy goat. He's captured by a maiden. Now hear how this is done. And this is how it's done. Perhaps you'd prefer the English version. If you want to hunt it, you go into the forest, which is where it lives, and there you put a virgin. Now, it's very important that she is a virgin. If she isn't, the consequences will be unfortunate. First of all, the unicorn will kill her, and then it will run away, and so you won't catch it. So, you put a virgin, her breast exposed outside her shift, and by scent the unicorn detects her, comes to the maiden, kisses her breast, falls asleep in front of her, and thus goes to its death. The watching, waiting man kills it as it sleeps, or suddenly captures it alive. He does whichever he prefers. And there you have a picture of the technique. Uh, in this case, a naked virgin with an obviously very sleepy uh, unicorn in her lap. This is a rather horsey unicorn, Two kinds of unicorn, this is my classification, horsey unicorns which are like that and like the one which uh, stands opposite the lion on the, on the uh, royal arms and goaty unicorns which are really the genuine ones. You see the Anglo-Norman document tells us he has a body like a book. Now a book is a billy goat. Anyway. I have to give you a little context for this description so that you see that it does actually have some relevance to what I'm supposed to be talking about. The unicorn is one of many animals described in Philippe de Taun's Bestiaire, but the bestiary's purpose is not to be a zoological catalogue. It's a moral mirror. In the 12th century, there was a powerful theological view that living things, particularly animals, were put on earth as moral exemplars, representing the relation of God and his church to his most perfect creation, man. And the opening lines of this, relatively well-known perhaps, mid-12th century poem by Alan of Lille, express the idea exactly. All the world of creation is as a book, an image and a mirror to us, a faithful representation of our life, our death, our worldly station, and our fate. And duly, the bestiary describes the significance of the unicorn. It represents God. The virgin represents Mary. The kiss, I'm sorry, the breast is Holy Church. The kiss, again, is God. 
Then we have a most curious theological argument that I shall not attempt to either explain or defend, that God deceived the devil by a resemblance between sleep and death in the crucifixion. And a conclusion that body and soul are one, as were God and man. This is the significance of such a beast. So you see then that it's perhaps not too surprising that the horn of this holy beast should have magical powers, occult powers, to preserve life against the action of poison. Not only that, but it was the ultimate poison detector because it sweated in the presence of poison. It didn't have to put the poison on it. It just had to be close to the poison. So it was an accessory without which no king, no powerful man could possibly afford to be. Such, at least, was the common view of the 16th century. But that great and sceptical sergeant Ambroise Paré was having none of it. He was sceptical about unicorns. We've already seen that. He said, he, I wouldn't have believed in their existence except they're mentioned, I think, five times in Holy Writ. So we have to accept that they exist. Anyway, here is the book that I said he wrote as a result of the conversation with his patient. You see it's about mummy, which we've dealt with, more or less, about unicorns, about poisons, and for good measure, about the plague. Having dismissed mummy as useless and so on, Paré turned his attention in detail to the famous horn of the unicorn. And he says, well, let us suppose then that there are unicorn horns and they do have the properties which are attributed to them. I deny this, and I'll prove it by experience, authority, and reason. Now, that is the usual triad of techniques that will be used to prove the thesis. And he says, these are Paris words, let us begin with experience, and my comment that here he means experiment, as we shall see immediately. I can assert, having tested it several times, never to have detected any effects from the horn said to have come from the unicorn. So, here are the tests. People say that if it's given to a hen or a pigeon which has taken arsenic, no harm will come to them. But this is false, as the experiment will show if you repeat it. Other people say that if you soak it in water, and then with the water draw a circle on a table, put in the middle of the circle a poisonous beast, a scorpion, a spider, a toad, these beasts die and they can in no way cross the circle. This is false and a lie. I've done the experiment. Not only that, but I soaked a toad for three days in unicorn water. And at the end of it, the toad was as cheerful as when I put him in. And other people say that the unicorn horn has magical or special physical properties. If you put it in water, the water boils. And he says, but that happens with any old horn. Pot lids, tiles, wood, anything that contains air. It's just the air trapped in the pores which comes out. So he is very sceptical, very dismissive, in <coughs> fact. And he said, but I'm not the only one. I was talking a little while ago to the king's chief physician, Jean Chapelain, who had been chief physician to Henry II and Charles IX, as his father had been to two kings of France before him. 
And he said, can't you stop this business of the unicorn horn hanging in the cup, particularly to abolish that custom there was of leaving a piece of unicorn horn soaking in the cup from which the king drank for fear of poison? Chapelain replies rather circumspectly, saying first that he believes that the good opinion of unicorn is so ingrained in the minds of princes and of the people that there would be no means of displacing it from that. Reason would be unable to overcome this. And also, everybody, well-meaning physicians, know it's worthless and has no virtues, but their patients demand it, so they are given it. Not only that, and significantly, were the patients to die without having taken it, their relatives would pursue the said physicians and regard them as of much value as counterfeit coin. Not only that, anybody who tries to refute a long-held opinion is like an owl letting itself be seen on a high perch, making itself the butt of attack by all other birds. He was probably wise to take that stance, at least publicly. Royal physicians were, in fact, in a very vulnerable position. It was a well-paid job, but it was a tricky job, because if any of the royal family were to die, particularly were to die by poison, and had not been given what everyone knew was the universal remedy against poison, the physician would be in an extremely awkward, not to say uncomfortable, position. The inverse is also true. The royal physicians were very inclined to diagnose poisoning when there was no evidence of, at all, of it at all, and that led to some other very unfortunate consequences that we won't go into. So finally, Paré says, I'm going to tell you one more story to dismiss another of the miraculous properties of unicorn horn. It's said to cure something called feu volage. Now, we don't know exactly what feu volage was, except that it was a severe inflammation of the face. It may perhaps have been erysipelas. Most probably, it wasn't one disease. So Paré says, there is an honest woman. Well, how honest she is, we'll see. But there's an honest woman who sells unicorn horns here on the Pont de Change in Paris, and she keeps a piece of the horn hanging in a jug of water, from which she happily gives to drink to anyone who asks her for it. Not long ago, a poor woman came begging her for some unicorn water to cure her child, which had terrible feu volage. Unfortunately, that day there had been a big run on the unicorn water. She'd given it all away. But she didn't want to send away the poor woman empty-handed, so she gave her some river water instead. The woman went away, and a few days later she came back with her mouth full of benedictions and praise and thanks for the merchant who had cured her child. So behold, says Paré, the river water was just as good as the unicorn. But, in spite of that, I won't go through the calculation, Paré shows and quotes Andrea Bacchi, a Florentine physician who had also written on the unicorn, about the cost of unicorn horn, it was worth more than ten times its weight in gold. There was then a very considerable reason for apothecaries to maintain the belief in the power of unicorn horn. 
it was an important and very pr profitable part of their business. So it's hardly surprising that within a year of Paris' book, Another book was published, well, they're booklets, really, rather than books, uh, Réponse au discours, etc. The author doesn't announce himself, but he takes care to say that the book has been seen and approved by the dean of the faculty of medicine. And that, again, isn't surprising. Um, Paré was no friend of the physicians, or the physicians were rather no friend of Paré. So he comes forward, then, to defend the unicorn horn, from the text, it's, I think, pretty clear that he's an apothecary. He begins by saying to Paris, you're a great surgeon, and everybody admires your surgery, but when you stray outside the limits of your competence and criticize physicians and apothecaries, even the little children laugh at you. He then goes on, um, pretty rudely, actually. The whole book is, is, is uh, vituperative. The arguments against Paris tests of the unicorn horn are not mentioned at all. The whole book turns on medical theory and on, the, and on maintaining that the unicorn horn has occult or secret properties. This is so important that this one paragraph really summa summarizes the whole argument, if we can distinguish it by that name. If we were to wish to be Pyronians, extreme skeptics, and deny these specific qualities because we never see them in practice, we would make the art suspect and its practitioner ridiculous. What in effect he's saying is, doesn't matter that you never see any of these remedies work, that you never see a patient cured by them, this should in no way affect your belief in them. It should in no way make you think that they are not as the authorities say that they should be. So much for the value of observation. And now the last blast of the trumpet. Paré, now about 74 years old, replies with this little booklet of 15 pages. He replies in rather generous terms, saying that he will disregard his adversaries' animosities because he thinks that perhaps they escaped him only because of his zeal for the truth. Well, you may feel, as I do, that this is very heavy irony. In any case, the whole argument concerns specific and occult properties. Paré doesn't repeat his account of his experiments, disappointingly, really. I imagine that he had realised that the owl on its perch was not going to displace the established view there's no point in going through the arguments, um, and, and I won't. Let's move then to something else. That is, uh, Paré has now, at least in his mind, and, and mine too, demolished the usefulness of unicorn horn as a prophylactic or treatment. But there is that other universal, Mithridate, the bizarre stone, now, the unicorn is still well known, the bizarre stone less so. It seems that in the past, that's to say, in the past regarded from the late 16th century, the name was used for pretty well any antidote to poison. But now, Paré says, it should only be used for a concretion growing in the stomach of a species of goat found in Persia and certain parts of the West Indies. Again, 
exotic places far away. Nevertheless, actually, some goats do have concretions in their stomach, and bizarre stones, or at least a concretion, which you can call a bizarre stone, do exist. He says, Paré says, it's used not only against poisons and venoms, but it cures many other maladies. And then he explains how he once had an occasion to test bizarre stone as a remedy against poison and tells us the outcome. Here is the story. It's relatively well known. You may have heard it before. The first phrase, the late king was in the town of Clermont in the Auvergne, allows us to date the episode, although as far as I can see, nobody has, um, has done this previously. Anyway, um, Clermont is Clermont-Ferrand. Charles IX and his mother, Catherine de' Medici, made an extensive tour of the whole of France between the spring of 1564 and December 1565. We know they were in Clermont. We don't know that they were in Clermont at any other time. The king at this time was young, about 15 years old, and Catherine de' Medici, the queen mother, was also the regent. So, a gentleman appeared with a bizarre stone from Spain. He claimed it was effective against all poisons and very valuable. And Paris says, since I was there, the king asked me, could there be a universal remedy against all poisons? Paris says, no, of course there couldn't because different poisons work in different ways. So each must be resisted by its own uh, antidote. <coughs> but the man with the stone, I wonder if he was trying to sell it. But anyway, we, we don't know that. Um, the man with the stone said, no, 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 it's active against all poisons. So Paris said, well, we could try it out if we had a criminal who would otherwise be hanged. So the king immediately sent to the local judge asking him if there was such a person. And he said, yes, I've got in my prison a cook who stole, stole two silver platters from his master who's to be hanged tomorrow. The cook was summoned and given a choice. Would you be willing to take some certain poison and then immediately be given an antidote? And if you survive, your life will be spared. The cook said, oh, yes. He very willingly assented. Actually, I'm not going to go into it, but if you know about the process of hanging in the 16th century, I suspect you might assent too. Anyway, he said he'd much rather die from poison in prison than be strangled in sight of the people. So an apothecary immediately gives him the poison and immediately the, the Zohar stone, and he becomes ill right away. Begins to vomit and go to stool. Paré hears that the Cook is ill and goes to see him in, poison, uh, in prison and finds him, as he says, crawling like a beast with his tongue protruding from his mouth, his eyes and ears flaming red, continually wanting to vomit, voiding blood from every orifice. I got him to drink half a measure of oil, hoping to help him and save his life, but it was too late, and he died miserably, saying it would have been better to have done, for him to have died on the gallows. Paris then opens the body and finds the fundus of the stomach black as though it had been burnt by a cottery. And he says, from that I knew that he'd swallowed sublimate. Sublimate, mercuric chloride, corrosive sub sublimate, indeed a horrible poison. 
Thus the experiment showed that the stone was worthless and the king commanded that it be thrown into the fire and this was done. So the other universal um, antidote in the, on the basis of a trial n equals 1 was not very useful. Mind you, it was a severe test against a corrosive poison. Now, in the later editions of Paré's works, that's to say the ones published after 1575, there is a note in the text, or sometimes a marginal note, referring to a similar, similar trial carried out by Mattioli. Pietro Andreo, Andrea Mattioli of Siena, a physician and a botanist, was the author of the most famous book on Materia Medica of the 16th century. His commentaries on the herbal of Dioscorides uh, were very much more than comment. 90-odd percent of the text is new material and is Mattioli, not Dioscorides. In 1572, the work, which had been originally published in Italian, then translated into Latin, was translated into French, and we know that it was that edition that Paré had read. Again, I won't go into the details of how we know that. We have a particularly fine copy of that edition. It has more than a 1,000 specially commissioned woodcuts, and in our edition, these are hand-coloured by a contemporary hand. You've seen one of them already, the uh, one of Mummy. So, I thought I'd pursue these. All the references are inaccurate. It's about the only thing they have in common. Nevertheless, there were such trials done by Mattioli. Here we have the title page of our copy of that um, book of, of the French edition of the commentaries with Mattioli's portrait. And here we have the substance against which all the trials were run. Aconitum napolis, monk's hood or wolfsbane, indeed a very poisonous plant, plant of which all parts are poisonous. A popular plant in ancient times, Medea is said to have used it, apparently a popular plant in the Middle Ages for poisoning people, seems to have got out of fashion these days. People are still poisoned by Napolis in the West by eating it by mistake, but it forms an, impo an important component of traditional Chinese medicine and aconite poisoning is actually common in the Far East. So, all these tests then are against Aconitum napolis. The first one, Mattioli didn't do himself, he witnessed it when he was a young man, in the first year of the reign of Pope Clement VII. Now, Pope Clement VII touches our story in several places. He was the uncle of Catherine de' Medici. When she married the second son of Francis I, the King of France, um, who later became Henry II of France, he presented the king with a valuable gift, and that valuable gift was a gold-mounted unicorn horn. So, we're told that Clement wished to test the virtue of a very excellent oil 
that my master, that's Mattioli's master, one Gregoire Caravita, had invented. No doubt he was worried, as usual, about being assassinated. So he, Pope Clement, ordered some Naples to be given to two brigands. Oh, you know from other parts of the text they were Corsican brigands, if that makes any difference, who'd been condemned to be hanged. So the first one was given a large amount of Naples in tarts and uh, marzipans. He was anointed with the oil, that's how it was used, for three days. He didn't die, though he was certainly very ill. The second was a control. He was not anointed with the oil in order to make strength of trial of strength of the venom. He soon showed its effect, for after a few hours, the poor fellow died tormented by all the pains and suffering that Avicenna has written following, following the ingestion of Naples. You would think, then, that Mattioli would go on and say, this shows what a marvellous remedy this. Actually, he does no such thing. He goes on and says, that shows that Avicenna was right about how poisonous Naples was. As well as being a universal antidote, the oil has other uses. It's a sovereign remedy against the plague. It's useful against all non-corrosive poisons, as we've seen. It's also useful against the bites of all venomous animals. It is effective for the cure of those already infected by plague. Ooh, and by the way, it kills worms. That seems rather a come down after curing the plague. Nevertheless, the two sit together in the same sentence as I've translated them. And so that everyone knows what a benefactor I am to mankind, I'll tell you how to make it. And this is the description. Don't worry, I'm not going to translate the whole page. First of all, he says that he's a benefactor to everyone and describes how you must go about it. At the beginning of May, which is when the preparation must be made, take ordinary oil a hundred years old, or as old as you can find. Put in it hypericum, and then more hypericum, and then more hypericum, and then a whole lot of other things. Then towards the end, you must have 300 live scorpions caught during the hottest weather enclosed in a glass vessel, held over hot coals. Presumably this is to make them discharge their poison. Then you must throw on the oil, but be careful it doesn't break the glass. Stop at the vessel, put it away in a bath of water for three days, and then cool and strain it. And when the scorpions have been thrown aside, you must add to the infusion a whole lot more herbs. That, then, is how you prepare Mattioli's oil. It would take you about a month, actually, because there are many episodes of cool for three days, heat for three days, uh, mature for three days, and so on. Now, before I tell you about the last two trials, I thought it might be useful to let you see from the mid-19th century some information about Napolis poisoning which was collected by one Alexander Fleming. And not that Alexander Fleming. Um, this Alexander Fleming was a pupil of Sir Robert Christison, and he wrote a thesis on Napolis. So he says, first of all, 
it may prove fatal by a powerful sedative impression on the nervous system. But that's in animals in big doses. He tested it both in animals, and he didn't give it deliberately to patients, but patients were treated with it for various conditions, and overdoses were not uncommon. Secondly, it may prove fatal by suspension of the respiratory function. That, again, was in animals in big doses, but in fact, it can cause respiratory paralysis in man. Thirdly, it may prove fatal by syncope, and this seems to have been the mode of death in all the well-authenticated cases. That means the well-authenticated 19th century cases. Then he lists a number of other symptoms and effects, and uh, there is the list. Most, probably all of those, are now explicable by the modern observation that aconitine permanently opens tetrodotoxin-sensitive sodium channels in heart, muscle, and nerve, of course, if they're held open, the nerve and muscle are blocked. In fact, it's been used quite extensively to create models of ventricular arrhythmias. Death, incidentally, is usually due, these days at least, to intractable ventricular arrhythmia resistant to modern treatment. Anyway, the last two trials. In Prague, in 1561, the emperor's physicians want to test uh, a certain renowned mixture. We're not told what the mixture is. It had already resisted arsenic, we're told. So once again, a thief is brought along, willingly swallows the poison, and nothing happens. So they think that perhaps the poison, because Bohemia is cold, has lost its effect. So they make a new brew and give this to the poor subject, and nothing happens. So Mattioli says... Everyone went home and left me in charge of the affair. And an hour later, the subject became ill. Now, I'm only going to pick out the symptoms and signs which we know are associated with aconite poisoning. Great lassitude, great debility and oppression of the heart. His pulse hardly beat at all. He said he was very cold. He vomited. He wanted to sleep. I prevented him from sleeping, but without anything else happening, he became silent, and little by little, he died. Sudden death, when the patient doesn't seem too ill, is actually not uncommon, I understand, in aconite poisoning, probably those ventricular arrhythmias again. Anyway, the remedy wasn't much good in that case, but in the second case, he tries bizoar. The thief takes the poison, he becomes ill almost immediately, he's given the bizarre stone, vomits, paralysis of the left arm and thigh, again, aconite poisoning does indeed cause paralysis, said that all the veins of his body were cold, turning in the head, for Tygo perhaps, convulsions of the mouth, pain, and so on. Variable arterial pulse, sensible sometimes, sometimes raving. Intermittent delirium, becomes blind three times. Again, that does happen. Was in the death agony three times. Sensation of appending death is also common. And he survives. Now, you would think that at this point, again, Mattioli would say, that shows that Bezoar's good stuff. He says no such thing. He only says again, 
This just shows that Avicenna was right. So finally, were there any comments on those trials? Well, Mattioli's trials seem to have been forgotten until the 19th century, when one is mentioned by Christison uh, in the first edition of his Treatise on Poisons. It's omitted from all the later editions. And there's a footnote by Fleming, whose work we've already mentioned. That's all. But Paré's trial was criticized very soon after its publication, and again in the 19th century. Taking the second first, Stephen Paget, now this is the son of Paget of Paget's disease, says as another story, and to his discredit, he tells it against himself with remorse, but not enough, the horrible story of the cook and the bizarre stone. Well, I can find no evidence at all in Paris' account, either that he tells a story against himself or of any remorse on his part. These comments seem to be pure invention by Paget. He then quotes the trial that we've already seen and says, the evil that we do lives after us. Years later, the faculty attacked Paré over this bad business of the Bizarre Stone, and here is his lame defense. Well, I won't go into the details of why Paré and the faculty had the disagreement. It is because Paré had published his oeuvre in 1575 without seeking the approval of the faculty of medicine, which he was legally obliged to do. The faculty brought a legal process against him, it was heard by the Parlement of Paris, which was not a parliament but a law court in the 16th century. We don't know the outcome except that the book wasn't withdrawn. But by the purest chance, a single copy of Paris' printed pleading survives. And from that, we know that one of the charges against Paris was the trial of the Bizoar Stone. The faculty accused them of immoral conduct in having agreed to indeed suggested the trial by giving poison to a condemned criminal and of defaming the memory of the king, Charles IX, on whose behalf he'd carried out the trial. Paré replies, summarized that by saying, he replies by saying that if you consider why I did the trial, it was in case my master the king might rely on Bizoar if he'd been poisoned, and so I wanted to prevent that happening by demonstrating that the bazaar was no use. And I don't think that I um, did uh, defamed his memory any more than Clement VII, the Pope, did when he told a similar story, which you've now heard. Incidentally, this time he gets the reference right. So, Paré's trial of bazaar is still fairly well known, but his observations on unicorn horn have been completely forgotten, which is a pity because though they're much less dramatic than the test of Bizarre, they show Paré's independence of thought, his reliance, particularly on observation and experiment, at a time when those were not at all in vogue. But Chapelain, the royal physician, was also right, that experiment and demonstration of the ineffectiveness of the remedies was not sufficient to dispel the long-held beliefs the belief and the enormously profitable trade in unicorn horn continued. It continued for another two centuries. There are records of the tax which was to be charged on unicorn <coughs> horns imported into England in the 17th century. And the belief in Mithridates, universal remedies against poison, persisted even longer. Now I'll leave you with a rather nice picture of a unicorn.
Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk slash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.